This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. And I'm back after a couple of days of laryngitis. You'll hear the hoarseness in my voice, but we're going to see how I can deliver or not with this froggy voice for you. Today, I'm going to talk about something that can be very tempting on social media, and that is taking online quizzes. Should you do that? Should you take the bait? And speaking of social media, there's this term that has been really in for the last many years. Influencers started with the Kardashians, but it goes way past that. And there are some very subtle ways some of your favorite people may be advertising to you, manipulating you. And I want you to be aware you can really enjoy them, but don't let them pick your pocket. Speaking of picking your pocket, or worse, online quizzes. Online quizzes are something that are all over the place now. You need to be really aware that so often when you get some kind of quiz about your sign, you know, your Zodiac stuff, or you get a personality test, that's a very another very common one. Even a number of different quizzes where you may have an opportunity to win something or learn something or whatever, and you think, wow. And you're just kind of bored. You're sitting, waiting in a doctor's office waiting room or whatever it is. And you're just scrolling around on your phone, and there's this quiz that seems so fun. Even a friend may have forwarded it to you because they thought you'd enjoy it, right? Well, guess what? These quizzes used to be something that were just for fun, but now the fun and games are all at your expense because the hot thing now with online quizzes is using them as a way to steal your identity, your personal information, because what they want is they want key background information on you that allows them to fool security systems and get to your accounts and potentially ultimately your money. So I know this is like a wah, wah, wah. Here we are again. Another thing that seems so innocent turning out not to be at all. So I want to tell you how I handle it. So let's say I get a survey, which is another thing where the criminals may get at you. And it's a survey from an organization that I do business with. What do I do first? You probably have heard me talk about this before. I go up and look at the actual 
address the survey's coming from. And repeatedly, you'll see the survey is not actually from the organization. This ties into something else. I get several times a week emails that pretend to be from major retailers. Uh, I travel a lot, hotel chains, things like that. And the emails are bogus. And how can you tell? The sender information repeatedly is going to be your tip off that it's not real. But what's the one quiz question that a con artist is always going to ask? Do you know what it is, Krista? No. What is used as a challenge repeatedly to verify identity? Oh, your mother's maiden name? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that one is so very common with the scamsters. When they send you a fake survey, a fake quiz, at some point they get in the questions where you're just going, oh yeah, you're just answering away. You're not really thinking about it. You may be distracted what's going on around you. And then you pop in your mother's maiden name, which at so many websites of all types and so many accounts you have of various types, including financial and your cell phone provider, they want your mother's maiden name. Um, One other thing I just wanted to mention that's kind of related is when you're on social media and somebody will post like, I got this result. There'll be a quiz to say like, what's your real age or what would your, um, your wrestling name be or your whatever. And so you go in and you take a quiz or your celebrity lookalike, you go in, but you give whatever app is that has created that quiz permission to see your entire account. Say you're on Facebook, your Facebook account. And how are those coming into you? Are they email or are they through social media? No, no, no. It's on social media and they don't sort of come to you. You see your friends took the quiz and then you go in and take it. So another wrinkle on what I was talking about with how a survey gets to you. That's what I, yeah. Okay. All right. So when would it be safe to fill out a quiz? I mean, I don't know that it's totally unsafe, but I just never do it because I don't want some other app that I'm not aware of having access to my Facebook account. Okay. All right. Uh, Let's go to some questions. This one is from Andrew in New York. I logged into my airline app and saw there was a change in my itinerary. I called customer service and was told all was okay. 20 minutes later, the same customer service representative called me back from a different number and said we owed $100 per ticket in additional taxes or they would cancel our tickets. There were six of us flying in two days. We said we would pay at the counter and ask for a supervisor who eventually hung up on us. I called back the airline, spoke with a U.S.-based customer service representative, and was told all was okay, and somehow the scammers picked off our phone call, even though we called the correct number for the airline, we double-checked our call history. If scammers can grab our phone calls to the airline, what stops them from grabbing a call to our credit card company or brokerage? What can you do to prevent this? So, Andrew... I'm really uh, shook by this because we've had the fat finger dialing thing before where criminals will obtain the numbers, a variety of phone numbers that are maybe one digit off from a bank's customer service, a brokerage customer service, never heard of it being an airline's customer service number. You checked your UMA history, 
say the number matched perfectly. That we've not heard before. This is a rogue customer service agent. You think so? He said the same person called him back from a different number. So it sounds like, and it sounds like that customer service agent was not in the U.S. Because when he says he called the airline back, he got a U.S.-based agent. So I think this was a this was an inside job. So I'm not even aware of uh, this airline using anybody outside the United States anymore because there's been such a backlash on that. Wow. Okay. So the great news, Andrew, is you didn't get burned. Yes. The scary news for me is if, in fact, criminals have figured out how to intercept customer service calls going to the right phone number, that's one I'm going to lose sleep over. Wow. I mean, the only thing I can say is you did exactly the right thing. You were a skeptic. You refused to pay the extra money. You protected yourself so many ways because you would have ended up giving a criminal your credit card number, expiration, plus the three-digit code on the back of a card or four-digit code on the front of an Amex. You would have given them your zip code. I mean, all these things that a criminal would have been off to the races way beyond 100 bucks. So uh, just know that when somebody starts telling you something with extreme urgency, it's your fault, your problem, do it right now. That's when you just step back, take a deep breath, and maybe say, oh, I can't hear you on the line. I'm, I'll have to call back. And you start over fresh. Uh, one thing as well, any travel thing, sign into the airline website. Look at your reservation. Hotel. Sign in the hotel website or whatever third party you use to book a hotel. And you'll see there, looking at your reservation, if it's clean or not. So uh, with time, Andrew, we'll see if this is a crazy one-off with a crooked inside employee or if there's something bigger going on that we'll need to alert others to. And this question is from Curtis in Alabama. I got a refund from TicketSales.com. If you recall, he wrote into us before. First, I called Team Clark. They told me to file a complaint with the Texas Attorney General, and I did that. I then asked the OpenAI chat GPT to write a letter of complaint using legal terms about being charged $711.85 for $148 worth of tickets. I also asked them for their registered agent. I contacted them in Facebook Messenger. Only then did the stonewalling from the company stop. Two days later, I received an email from them informing me of the refund. Before I sent the legal-sounding message, I got the standard response of all sales are final and that they couldn't issue refunds because they don't have the tickets. They connect sellers and buyers. I did note that I got the refund email about 15 minutes after I got a response from the Texas Attorney General that they were looking into this. So, you know, we don't know which button you push that got you the money back, but persistence pays, not always, but many times. And you kept pushing the system at an organization that you look at the reviews, man, and you were able to intimidate them and you got your money back. And that's fantastic. And it seems after all these years, we're still early innings on the problems people have with online ticket sellers. Joe in New Jersey says Clark frequently advises investors to hire a financial planner who is a fiduciary. 
Although my financial planner states he's a fiduciary, he is not registered with any agency as one. I would like to ask him to sign an agreement that states he, as a fiduciary, he agrees to put my interest above his own. Does Clark know where I can find an agreement template or sample fiduciary agreement? I've been unsuccessful in doing so. So we have a guide to hiring a fiduciary and what you should expect them to sign at Clark.com. Why did I sigh so deeply there? Because what I'm more concerned about is you already have some underlying doubt here. You wouldn't be going through all this if there wasn't some doubt. I want you to go read our full briefing on hiring a fiduciary. I'd like you to go interview other financial planners and see if maybe these doubts you have need to be answered by taking your business somewhere else. Uh, You know, you work so hard for your money and you don't want to be in a position where someone who's a sweet talker creates a sour financial outcome for you. I keep reading stories that are written to financial advisors about ways to fool their clients into thinking they're putting their interests first. This is an active area with people that are actually putting their wallet before you, but pretend that they are actually acting in a fiduciary capacity, but are unwilling to sign an agreement with you saying they are, in fact, legally a fiduciary. Why? Because that puts them in legal jeopardy if later they're playing dirty. So you got those doubts in you. I would follow your instincts on this and go hire somebody who actually is truly practicing as a fiduciary. And what you've always said is the easiest way to make sure, or you know, as sure as you can be, is to hire a certified financial planner and check the CFP board website to make sure that they're listed there, which this person well, that, must that, not have been. That is a valid step, but someone can be a true fiduciary outside of a CFP right. designation. And it's not just enough, though, that somebody be acting in a legal fiduciary relationship with you. And all that means is that they legally must do what's best for you, not what's best for them. Your personalities also have to jive. They have to listen. They have to ask the right questions, which is not, well, I think you'd do great in this product or that product or the other. That is the smallest part of what a fiduciary does because a fiduciary properly trained and doing his or her job correctly is looking at your overall goals, where you are and how to get you there. So you have these doubts and you're getting evasion from this individual. I think it's time for you to go shop for a new person. Uh, Coming up ahead, speaking of people who you may like, but you need to be wary of. Influencers, way up high on that list. We're going to talk about it. The way we're marketed to is changing on so many layers. So many things are different than they used to be. You think how linear advertising used to be. In the old days of old media, you had key gateways 
to how information, entertainment came your way and how advertising came your way. Overwhelmingly, you got it through first this thing called newspapers. Believe it or not, newspapers used to be the most profitable part of media. A single city newspaper might make a hundred million or more in profit a year. And it was because they were thick, filled with ads. And of course, TV, radio, the three principal ways that advertisers reached you. The messages were uh, either national, regional, or local. And that was how it was done. Well, then, if you go back to the beginning of the end for local newspapering, it was actually Craigslist. Because the most lucrative advertising in any local newspaper in the United States was classified ads. If you're not of an age to know what classified ads were, if you were trying to buy something or sell something, you'd go to the classified ads, which were these little teeny ads that cost a crazy amount of money. And anybody who had vision problems would need a magnifying glass to be able to read the classified ads. And it was a license to print money on the part of newspapers. And Craigslist was the first clear indicator because you could post your own essentially classified ad for free, totally locally driven. It was the first clear indication that advertising models were going to change dramatically in the United States. This was more than a generation ago that this emerged. And piece by piece, how we're reached has gone through so many different changes and You've got ads that are fed through search engines, through social media, and all forms of new media. Think about, I was in radio, I still do a little bit of radio every day, but I went into radio in the 1980s and did a syndicated radio show till two years ago, and radio was how you reached large numbers of people, if you were in syndication, across the country, and Canada in our case. And then podcasting, That I remember when we first started putting our, we put our radio show up available to people. I don't even think the word podcasting existed when we first started doing it. What did we call it, Krista? Was it called, we streamed it? What did we call it? It was a podcast. We, we did call it? <laughs> yeah. That was like 15 years ago, wasn't it? I don't when know how first, many years ago it was. It was long, long ago. I'm terrible with dates, but okay. So the as funny far thing, as I know. One of the radio companies got very upset with me that we were doing this. And it turned out we looked to see how many listeners we had to our, I feel like it was, we called it something else, but podcast. But anyway, we had a couple of dozen people in the whole country listening to it. <laughs> And that radio group said, okay, okay, well, I don't know why do you're doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can do that, but you're really stupid. I don't know why you'd do that. And today, obviously, podcasting is huge. Our podcast is phenomenally successful. The point that I was able to give up syndicated radio two years ago and reach you 
long form with podcast. I still do short form on radio, but long form podcast. And so the point is the way people are reached is so many different ways. Most podcasts, we're fortunate we're able to support this podcast with advertising, but how do most podcasters support themselves? They do subtle endorsements or out and out endorsements and quote unquote influencers a whole field that grew out of the Kardashians figuring out how to brand themselves and then do all these brand extensions from their images and then talk about something or show a video of something and suddenly the sales for that would rise. So today the challenge for you and me is it's one thing to enjoy someone following them enjoying their content, uh, whether they are whatever kind of content they do. It's all different kinds. It can be popular culture kind of content. It can be, uh, in our case, financial, about your wallet. It can be any kind of thing. But just because you enjoy them doesn't mean because suddenly they start talking about something, you should say, hmm, I think I'm going to get that. I'm going to buy that. Well, listen to this. There was a study done by an uh, organization called Matter Communications, whoever they are, that roughly two-thirds of Americans now are more likely to be interested in buying something or buy something because they've heard of it from an influencer rather than an ad from the company itself who they're being paid to influence for. I mean, that's crazy. And I think it goes back to a few things. One, we don't trust institutions anymore. And we look at an organization trying to sell us this, that, or the other as the institution we shouldn't trust. But then we've established a bridge of trust with an individual, or we enjoy them. And so they start wearing a particular outfit or... Saying they lost weight, taking some supplement. Right. Or that you should buy, if we go back uh, a little bit more than a year ago, that you should buy this crypto, that crypto, the other crypto. Oh, all the lawsuits about that towards people who who got paid money and then pretended they just um, empirically thought it was great to invest in this, that, or the other crypto. Anyway. Be aware of the human nature aspect of this. Just because you enjoy somebody, you got to realize they're being bought and paid for as a celebrity endorser like anybody else you see on any ad or read any ad or hear any ad. And don't give it extra oomph, this two-thirds greater likelihood that you will buy because somebody you like said you should buy it. Wow. Be wary. It's your wallet. It's your hard-earned money. And knowledge in this case is power. And today you should buy a (laughs) so-and-so. All right. Brian in Florida says, Clark, Though the government default seems more like political theater, is it possible that the U.S. could default later this year or sometime in the future? And how does this affect holders of I-bonds or other government-backed securities? 
So let's see if I can do this without having people throw political oh boy. arrows at me because this is a tough area. Okay. Okay. So we've had this going on at various times over the last, I guess, 12 years with these uh, big flashpoint fights over the debt limit. So in theory, the United States would still need to meet its debt obligations, but would then have to not meet obligations to, to the American people. That's where this gets really messy. If people around the world, so many of which own U.S. government debt, no longer trust that the United States will meet its promises to pay its debt. It means the interest we have to pay for the borrowings we do will ultimately rise. And that is a huge problem for all of us as taxpayers and as citizens. There's another problem, though. We have on automatic pilot spending in the U.S. government that is not sustainable. Social Security, Medicare, transfer payments make up most of the federal budget, and they're on automatic pilot. We have an aging population. We don't have enough money coming in. The one good thing that could come out of this, as you said, political theater, is if it forces us to face the reality that we're going to have to change how we fund and what we pay out for Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. If the United States is going to remain strong, we cannot continue to run massive budget deficits. Right now, both political parties have decided to put blinders on and say that all this obligation of the federal government is off the table. It is impossible, impossible for us to deal with our deficit spending and the ultimate weakness that it will lead to for the United States, for us as Americans and our nation, if we don't address this. So we need some grown-up people to stop trying to score short-term political points and demagogue, and we need to deal with the reality that we are spending significantly more money than is coming in. And that will come to great harm for us individually and us as a country. So would it be horrible if the world doubted our commitment to meet our debt obligations? Absolutely. And it would be horrendous if we don't deal with the budget problems we face as a country. Now, you can look at that through a political lens if you want. That's just straight, raw, true economics. Matson in Ohio says, I responded to an advertisement for solar panels for my home. The company contacted me with what sounds like a good deal, but it's still a lot of money and I don't have a lot. I'm already in debt. The price quoted was $45,000 and after tax breaks, it would be $3,100. My payment- $31,000. Okay, they put thirty one hundred, but you're probably now, right. I'm doing the ta- yeah, yeah, that must be correct. Okay, it would be thirty one thousand. My payment is one hundred and seventy three dollars for twenty five years. I'm fifty eight right now. Your thoughts, please. So I love solar. I hate it for you. You you are not in a position that you want to create an obligation that would last twenty five years when 
money is already an issue. Do not believe their promises about how much money that solar is going to save you. All I can look at here is you're taking on a debt obligation that would be a huge debt obligation and would be a liability if at some point you want to sell your home. Remember, you're talking about an obligation that would go on, let's see, you're 58. You said uh, you'd be 83 years old. No. No matter how enticing the idea of solar would be, and again, I do love solar, say thanks but no thanks, and continue to pay your power bill for now because I don't want you to add this new debt obligation in your life. What happens in 25 years if that solar company goes bust, your panels go into disrepair, you're responsible for the obligation of getting them working, and you still remain responsible for the payments for the solar every single month because that payment is for what they did installing them, not for the ongoing vitality or lack thereof or effectiveness of those panels. And this is from Robert in Pennsylvania. I won a six-day cruise in 2022. When I booked the cruise, the price was $2,600, and then my winning code brought it down to zero. I received a 1099 showing the value to be $4,000. Do I have any recourse to remedy this discrepancy? All right, so Robert, this is a case where you definitely want an enrolled agent. That's somebody who is registered with the IRS to deal with tax matters or a CPA who does tax. Because what's happened here, this happens a lot uh, when TV game shows used to be really big and we'd get this question, is somebody would win something on the show and they'd say that it was worth blah, blah, blah dollars. But in real life, it wasn't worth close to that. But you were being taxed on what they said on the TV show that something was worth $20,000 and maybe it was worth $10,000. So I hope you have the documentation of the original $2,600 because that's going to be key for the person who helps you dispute this with the IRS. And the way this plays normally, and I'm giving you basics general on how this is accounted for in a tax return, is the 4000 is reported by you on your tax return. And then 1400 of it is backed out with an explanation attached for the IRS. Because what you have to do, you have to match up with the 1099s you receive. And so that's why it's something that as an individual taxpayer, it outruns our ability to know how to navigate the tax return in a situation like this and why you need a tax professional to deal with it because you don't want to pay tax on $1,400 of phantom income. So you do have a recourse. It's just something that you can't really self-help your way through. And I want to thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so glad to be back with you on the podcast. I want to tell you, I did have a virus and it's over. My doctor cleared me to come back here. Then I got developed laryngitis. And so I'm not infecting Krista or the other staffers that are here. Don't worry. I'm not doing presenteeism where you come in and you infect other people. So 
I'm glad to be here with you. What I want to infect you with is good financial sense where you're able to take control of your wallet and build a better financial future for yourself and your family. Have a great day.